Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and in this episode I'm joined by Martin Sexton, Chair of the British Association of Social Workers Policy, Ethics and Human Rights Committee and Carolyn Ewart, National Director of Basway Northern Ireland and we're talking about duty of candour. Now this might not grab you as the most immediately engaging of topics but believe me, the issues we're going to discuss including the proposal to introduce in Northern Ireland a statutory duty of candour at the individual level with criminal sanctions for breach of the duty well these pose major implications for social workers in Northern Ireland which could set a precedent for the other UK regions. But before we get into the topic I want to see how my guests are feeling. Martin, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, Andy. It's good good to be on Let's Talk Social Work again. Yes, and welcome back again, because we made an episode, it was in December past? Uh, yes, for... that's right. That's for, for, for Human Rights for Human rights Day, talking about human rights and social work, uh, which is you know obviously a relevance to the questions we're going to be discussing today. And we're coming, we're coming into this off the back of uh, Baswa recently refreshing its its code of ethics and reinforcing its commitment to to open to human rights, which obviously includes a commitment to being open and honest with people. So it's very very timely to be having this discussion. Thanks, it is, it is, and it's been a. a it just makes me realise how remarkably fast the last, I suppose, seven months have, have flown yes. in. Yes, um, lovely <laughs> to have you back, um, Carolyn. Uh, Carolyn Ewart is actually my manager, so I've seen Carolyn more uh, recently than seven months ago. Carolyn, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Good to be here. Good to be part of the discussion. And it's lovely to see uh, Martin again. Nice to see you too, Andy. But I do see you, as you say, quite often. <laughs> Hello, Thanks. Goes without, saying. Goes without saying. And Carolyn was on episode number two of Let's Talk Social Work when we were looking at um, social workers' experiences of practising during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which uh, is a fantastic episode. And if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and dip into that. So... This, uh, this issue, uh, Judy of Candor. Now, I make the podcast for Basel UK, but regular listeners might have picked up that I actually work, my main job is working for Basel Northern Ireland. So this is an issue I have been very closely uh, working on in relation to the proposals for Northern Ireland. So you're going to hear me talk and offer more opinion than I normally would in other episodes. But before we get into what is being proposed for social work and other healthcare and social care workers in Northern Ireland, I want to talk about duty of candour in more general terms, what uh, duty of candour means in the context of social work. Martin, could we start with uh, a bit of an explanation of what we mean when we refer to candour in a professional context? Yes, thanks, Andy. It's, it basically means openness and, and honesty and um and and levelling with people, I think, is is the best way of describing it. That you 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 know you explain to people who you are, why you're there, um, what's brought you what's brought you to see that person, which they might not always know themselves because it might be somebody else that's sent you or suggested that you go. You talk to them about what you might be able to offer them, what your concerns are, um, what the consequences of of different courses of action might be. Sometimes you know it's for the person to choose. Uh, what happens other times, they're not going to have so much of a choice because of the situation they're in, because there's a safeguarding situation and you might have to use some some sort of statutory power that you need to make them aware of. 
um, and then you you do what you say you're going to do, and you talk to the person about how it's gone. You know, if, if things if things have gone according to plan, great. If not, then you 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 be open about that, and then you say why, um, and you let that person know what they can do next. You know, if if they are unhappy, if if they they want to complain if they wanted to talk to your professional association you know so so it's it's about being being open and accepting that professional responsibility and openly transparently respect accepting that professional responsibility and recognizing that you have you have a duty to 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 keep people informed because it's a professional relationship it's not like a friendship or a family relationship where where you know sometimes we 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 we, we cover things up for the sake of people's feelings. You're not in that situation. You're there as a professional. So you, you've got to, you want to accept that duty to be open and accept that accountability if, for what happens um, and raise concerns if you have any raise about that individual or the service or, or whatever it is. So it's, it's, it's a candor. It's, it's a kind of a, it sounds like a bit like a, a kind of very legal kind of word, but, but when you actually look at it, it, it covers a great many things that, that, that social workers should be doing, um, are doing, want to do, try to do. Um, and often, as we know, encounter difficulties in doing. And I think one of the issues in, in you know, exploring duty of candor, particularly with your proposals in Northern Ireland, is how, you know, how the social work approach and how the social work value base might come into conflict with some of the ideas that, for understandable reasons, are being put forward by, by, by the government. So I, th- I think that's something that we, we will need to, to come on to. Absolutely. And the concept of candour, it's written into the regulatory framework for social workers in all UK nations. Mm. So I I was looking at the the various different codes of practice um, when I was writing the consultation response. In terms of Social Work England, its professional standards guidance, it explicitly refers to a duty of candour. Social Care Wales has standalone guidance on terms of duty of candour. In terms of the Scottish code, there is... There's no direct reference to the term candour, but it talks about openness. It talks about being open and honest and uh, when problems occur, which is the same situation in Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Social Care Council use similar language, and it's what I would consider a sort of de facto duty of candour. Social workers are required in terms of the requirements of their professional regulators mm-hmm. to be candid, mm-hmm. to be open, to be honest when things go wrong. So we do, across the four UK nations, we have a fairly similar situation in terms of the regulatory framework. Yes, yes, and it's, and it's important to recognise at this point that, the, the, you know, the Baswell's Code of Ethics absolutely reinforces that and you, you know it's, I was looking through the code refreshing my memory of the code before we started and it's difficult to find an aspect of it that doesn't actually reflect some aspect of candor or openness or honesty or transparency even even the bits that, that don't explicitly use those words that's that's what's behind it it's about we're working with people empowering people respecting people's rights helping people to challenge um, oppression and and you know there are a few things that are more oppressive than silence the not knowing, not being told, not not for not finding out. So it's so it's absolutely you know in in, van, in terms of the value base, it's absolutely something that social workers try to do and should want to do. But there is an issue of how how is this expressed then in regulation and legislation in different places, and do, does that the way in which it's put into the, the, those legal frameworks does that actually support what social workers would want to do, or is it, is it actually going to cause problems for for, for what they're trying to do and, and how they're relating to? And people using social services and, and, and to their colleagues. 
And yes, BASO's Code of Ethics for Social Work, that's binding on all social workers who are BASO members. Now, mm-hmm. not every social worker in the UK is a member of BASO, but in terms of those that are members, it requires, Martin, I was reading it earlier as well, the quote I drew out was that social workers work in a way that is honest, reliable and open, clearly explaining mm-hmm. the rules, interventions and decisions and not seeking to deceive or manipulate people who use their services, their colleagues or employers. So that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Be open, be honest. If something goes wrong, tell the truth mm. yeah and and it's 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 it applies across the board it's not in it's not in situations where you're having to think about well what information should i share and what should i tell this person you know the, the basic commitment to operating um as a human rights-based profession is is you're committing to openness that's what human rights is about it's about having good reasons for what you're doing um being able to share those reasons with people looking at how to minimise the impact of what you're doing on people insofar as possible, taking into account their views. And that none of that's possible without without openness, without transparency, without without listening, and without a willingness to, to hold yourself accountable and, and be accountable. So it's 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 not simply about what, what happens when something's gone wrong. Um, and I think part of the part of the problem with the the the, the, the regulatory expressions of duty of candor in my view, and we can maybe talk about this later in the context of what's proposed in Northern Ireland, is that they're, 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 they're too much about shutting the door after the horse has bolted. You know, what do you do? And so, of course, the things you should do if something, the things will go wrong, and of course, the things you should do. But for me, there's not enough about, well, how do we promote an open culture? How do we promote open, honest relationships between social workers and the people they're working with, social workers and other professionals, social workers and their managers, so that, that, that it isn't something we have to scratch around and try and find out about when something goes wrong. You know, it's something we just do. And I realise I realize in saying that, that we're, you know, we're a long way from that in many places. And certainly in the, in the inquiries, um, like the big inquiries into this, like, like the Midstaff's inquiry, there wasn't that culture at all. And, and that, was the, that was the problem. So, so yes, yes, you need to be honest when something's gone wrong, but you just need to be honest. You know, it's, it's, yes. that, it's that fundamental commitment to it and what it might mean in terms of your practice and, and your relationships with others. And I think actually when, when we look at the Northern Ireland experience in particular, I mean, when we started to talk about a duty of candour, you know, we were excited actually about the possibilities that it could bring. Uh, yeah. And actually the, the sense we had around the work streams that were happening, one of those, Martin, was around this kind of idea that we would have an open and honest culture. And they wanted mm. to create this culture of openness and learning. And I think, mm. you know, those of us who are social workers and we're representing social workers at them, we're saying, yeah, this is a really good thing. And actually, you're going to find mm. a really willing audience for social workers mm. because mm. actually that sense of reflective practice of looking at where we've come from and and sharing and talking to people was something that we felt quite comfortable with. And we're, mm. we're really, um, well, I think we were, we, were, we were thinking that we could be champions in terms of saying actually being open, honest um, with people is a really healthy way to be rather than, um, as you say, whenever the, the horse is bolted, that we have to do something and we have to apologise. So um, it, it started out, I think, in a good place, you know. Mm-hmm. I do remember, though, Carolyn, back at the, the start of those conversations, this maybe kind of concern or fear that that meant that social workers would have to tell everybody an answer, an open, truthful, fully honest answer to every question they were asked, which obviously in many, many 
situations regarding safeguarding. That's just not going to be the case. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just spilling everything that's in your head every time you're asked a question. No, we're not. And I think, you know, around the, the work streams uh, initially, there was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about when the duty of candour would need to be applied. We had a situation uh, in the early days where examples were given around the mental health order, people being detained on the evidence of uh, neighbours, you know, and, and people saying, well, you would have to tell, you would have to tell that the neighbour made a complaint um, or that the neighbour shared concerns. And, you know, we were saying that's not a duty of candour. Those kind of grey areas where um, professionals use their professional uh, expertise to, to, to make judgment calls aren't actually situations of, of a duty of candour. They're not a bit of breach. Um, and I think it developed. And I think actually that was a useful conversation to have. So I think that what we've come to understand from candour is that it is about when something goes wrong and someone has been harmed in a very substantial way, um, that there's a responsibility then for honesty and openness around how, how we got to that situation. Now, before we then get into the the proposals that are being put forward in terms of um, statutory duties for Northern Ireland, it'd be really good to reflect on the legal contexts across the UK. So, Martin, you can keep me right in this, or perhaps we can keep each other right in this. Um, Looking at England, the statutory duty of candour was brought into law in 2014 through the CARE Act, and that's for NHS trusts. As I understand, that's a duty of candour at organisational level, is that correct? And there are potentially criminal sanctions at organisational level for breach? Yes, that's that's right, yes. The, 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 the regulation applies to... It's, it's more broad... It's broader than the NHS. It applies to the, the health and social care provider sector more generally, but it's the NHS trusts that are the organisations who are most likely to be employing social workers. Um, the, it, it's, it's something that's becoming more common in England. The, the, the acute trust in where I work employs social workers and, and it's, it's, it's happening more, more often. So it's, yes, it applies at the registered manager level. And, and there's, a, there's a framework of, of things that you, you have to tell the regulator about. If something happens of a certain level of severity, causes a certain degree of harm to somebody, you have to tell the regulator and you have to tell the person concerned. And, and if it, the person concerned doesn't have the capacity, mental capacity to understand a conversation like that, you have to you have to speak to somebody who re- who represents them. It happens um, at organisational level. Um, it's one of the the standards by which the CQC inspects and regulates providers, including trusts. Um, and there is a possibility of uh, of prosecution for breach of that breach of that duty. Um, there have been a small number of prosecutions in in England over the last few years since the standard was brought in of of, of hospitals. Um, and some care homes, I think, possibly as well. One or two care homes may have been may have been um, prosecuted for this for, 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 for breaching the duty of candour as well. So it's the the, the, the penalties, the criminal penalties, are not are not particularly severe. The the, the fine is pretty small, um, but obviously it's not at all remotely something that an organisation like a big NHS trust wants to happen to it. And and if you you're being prosecuted by the CQC. For breach of duty of candour, something's obviously gone pretty badly wrong, and it's going to open open the, the way for for people to bring other kinds of actions against you. If if, this, if it's reached the CQC threshold, you know there's not something they do every week. Um, then you know it's you, you're going to be sued. You're going to be sued in negligence. You know people are going to want damages and and, and so on. So so it's a it's a pretty serious it's a pretty serious business, um, and it does. It, it does focus on, on the institutional level. You know, there's somebody, that the person within the organisation who's got that clearly defined responsibility for candidness and candour, um, it's on them. 
And obviously that, that has implications for who, how they manage their staff and how they get the information in the first place, but it's their, their responsibility. Does it just apply, Martin, I'm wondering, to social work? Is it only within social work circles, the duty of candour? Um, well, it applies... The duty, the actual legal duty applies to, to any organisation that the CQC regulates. So, um, so that's care homes, domiciliary care providers and NHS trusts. And it's the NHS trust connection that brings the social workers in um, because, because they, they are increasingly employers of social workers in, in England. So, so that's where, that's where the, 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 the duty of candour, the, 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 the statutory duty of candour might start to pick up or to connect up with what with what social workers are doing, um, I think it's going to be um, we're going to get more involvement of the CQC in in local authority social work in this country. It used to regulate local authority social work that was taken away from it a while ago, but it's going to come back um, in over one or two specific things, which um, which will take us off topic. So I won't go into the details, but but there's going to be more CQC involvement. With local, there's likely to be more CQC involvement with local authorities on the, coming up, and so the, the the application of the duty of candour and situations in which duty of candour could be triggered is something that that might it, the, there might be more occasions in which it might happen. I mean, I'm not I'm not seeing this properly thought through and analysed anywhere yet, but it's something we're going to have to think about, and it's def, it's definitely a possibility. But just just to be clear, then not all social workers will be falling underneath this uh, organisational duty, Martin. So a social worker who's working for a local authority children's services team wouldn't be falling under it, whereas you, as a mental health social worker, you are falling under it, yeah? Well, I might be, yes. Yeah, I mean, so okay. social workers in, in working for children's services have their own regulatory framework. Um, it will it will involve standards of, of, of openness, of appro- you know, appropriate standards of openness, given the nature of the work that they do. Um, and being being honest, giving honest answers to questions, telling the truth when when the subject matter something's being investigated or a complaint is being investigated, you know there will be uh, contractual responsibilities for people as there are for, for adult social workers who work with local authorities. The Social Work England standards, as you say, quite clearly imply imply a duty of candour. So this is this is something that that even though they're not under that direct uh, statutory requirement social workers will will be engaging with for different reasons because of their value base because of their their regulatory base um but it's but it's it's only it's possibly not as structured as it is if you're if you're in a cqc regulated setting where there's a set of standards that say if xyz happens you need to tell the regulator and you need to tell the person that's ha- that it's happened to but that's the way it is that's how it is at the moment and, and obviously you know um the social work regulation has been a subject of great interest to successive governments in 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 England. Um, that's not probably not going to change anytime soon. You know, there's there's a there's a review of children's care uh, services taking place in England at the moment. I, I haven't seen anything coming out of that about recommending any additional duties in this area. But you know, it's 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 happening. It's supposed to be a wide ranging review. So you know, we'll we'll see what 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 do they recommend about about information sharing, openness and honesty in, in those contexts. So it's, it's, it's kind of in play in different places. 
So it's quite interesting that the system uh, in Northern Ireland is structured quite differently. About two thirds of the social workers employed here are employed in an integrated health and social care system. So they will automatically um, all fall under this uh, proposed uh, duty of candour. And we've had, you know, we've done a lot of consultation around it. And some of the the, the feedback we've had is that it could actually open up uh, a kind of a a recruitment issue uh, in that, you know, people are more likely to... uh, to maybe if they have a choice to ignore the option where they would they would fall under a statutory duty, uh, whereas if they work, for example, the probation board here, where all probation officers have to be social workers um, for the um, education welfare service or for criminal justice, they won't actually fall under the duty of candour. But uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a bit later. Yes. Yes, and I mean that's the direction, potential direction of travel in in England as well, because yeah. there's there's a big push for greater integration um, between uh, primary and secondary health services, and also between health and social care services. So there are likely to be more uh, organisations, kind of hybrid organisations, providing health and social care services based in NHS trusts. And and when you're an NHS employee, you're an NHS employee. You know everything everything yeah. applies to you. Yeah. So so it is it is something that's going to be increasingly relevant to to social workers and certainly in adult services in England and as yeah. I've said there are there are other developments that, that might might bring in you know an increased focus on this or, or suggestions around this and Martin the Welsh situation would that mirror what's happening in, in England so in terms of what's happening in Wales it was around about a year ago 1st of June 2020 the health and social care quality and engagement Wales Act became law and the Welsh government's in process of, of bringing that act into force and I think they're working to a target of spring 2023 that act will establish an organisational duty of candour on providers of NHS services, requiring them to be open and honest with patients and service users when things go wrong. Is that broadly equivalent uh, to to what the situation is in England? Yeah, that's 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 my understanding. Yeah, that it's it's it it, it it's obviously got some, some specifics for for the Welsh situation, but but it's it's based. It's based on on um, on what's what's happened in England, um, but there will be people who are taking this opportunity for maybe to for push for it to go further. Um, you know, the the origin of the the, the statutory duty of candour uh, in England was the the inquiry into Mid Staffordshire Hospital, uh, where where there was widespread failures of care, uh, failures of, of of compassion, really, and you know, a really toxic, uh, bullying culture that was deeply entrenched, and that the, the had gone unchallenged, unexposed for far too long, and, and people suffered and died. Um, and and the what we have on the statute books now in England is, is has emerged from that process. But there were people at the time, and there still are people that saying that the the the, the 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 legal framework should be stiffer. It should it should it should focus on individuals as well as as well as organisations, and and it should be should be backed up by criminal sanctions. So so the 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 ideas that are being floated in Northern Ireland are are you know they're, they're ideas that people in in other countries are, are still advocating for still suggesting you know even even though there are frameworks in these countries that, that actually maybe they should go further than they do and just then to ensure a full house in Scotland there's an organisational duty of candour and that focuses on healthcare and social work services. Now, Carolyn, you've been teasing us with uh, the Northern <laughs> Ireland's proposals, <laughs> teasing um, you, <laughs> teasing us. Um, <laughs> Let's get into that then. 
Um, perhaps it'd actually be best if the context, what is the wider context? Why are we looking at um, a set of proposals for Judith Calendar in Northern Ireland? If you trace the process back, where, where did this come from? Well, I think the process began really with the uh, inquiry led by Lord Justice O'Hara into the uh, the deaths um, around hyponatremia were really the, the starting point. So the public inquiry that he led, and I mean, it, it's fair to say that, you know, he was met with, um, for those who don't know, there were a number of children who, who d- tragically died and uh, the people involved, um, you know, and the trusts involved made it very, very difficult. They covered up, they hid, and they, they told lies. And I mean, it, it, it's hard to to hear the stories and to hear the testimonies of the people involved and uh, not sympathise with them. So they, they stem from that, actually, and from a, a desire to uh, to hear the voice of service users who have been harmed uh, terribly and whose children have died. That was that was five children who died because of failures in terms of medical care. Yes, it was. And I think that's that's an interesting point, Andy, and in that in some senses, I think because we've an integrated health and social care system here, there was a strong desire to see um, a legislative base um, apply, I think, um, within the health system. And, and that has evolved to be the health and social care system. So I think in many ways um, we're dealing with a system that has been designed to pick up flaws um, when, you know, when, it, when, say, for example, a doctor who's performing a surgery or who's performing a treatment in hospital does something wrong that has very drastic consequences. Um, and it's been teased out to become this much broader duty um, around all the professions who work with someone uh, where, where something they do may cause harm, really. And then in terms of those proposals, so something that Martin mentioned earlier on in terms of candor, not just being what you do when something goes wrong, but being an approach to work, being honest, being open in all of your dealings. The proposals for Northern Ireland, they're not just for a duty of candor. If we stop there, that wouldn't be the whole picture. Um, they're on a duty of candor and proposals for openness in terms of health and social care service provision. So we should be discussing the proposals for candor in the context of the being open framework and I suppose also the extent to which they will work towards the delivery of openness in health and social care because something we can get on to in a bit more detail soon is concerns that we actually have around whether or not some of the proposals for a duty of candor may actually close down efforts towards a more open, honest culture of working. Let's start then, Carolyn, in terms of an organisational duty. What, what's being proposed in Northern Ireland in terms of an organisational duty of candour? Okay, so the organisational duty of candour, put quite simply, Andy, you know, really will apply to all uh, providers of uh, health and social care services in Northern Ireland. And there will be an organisational duty that they um, are open and honest and, and learn when things go wrong, that they will um, apologise, they will accept responsibility share what has gone wrong and uh, and move to a system of um, having an open honest culture um, I think some of the things that are that are interesting about the organizational duty and I would say that we you know fundamentally support the organizational duty um, of candor and we, we've done so in our response uh, I think some of the things that are are difficult around it are that um, there's a five thousand pounds fine, I think, isn't it, that uh, that will apply to organisations who breach um, the organisational duty of candour. Yeah, that's the maximum penalty. The maximum penalty. So it's quite a small penalty if you think about an organisation. I think the the emphasis or the the thought is that they don't want to take away from patient care. Um, so that's why it's been kept quite small, isn't that right? And they do. Yeah, even in the constitution, yeah. they they acknowledge yeah. that. They also acknowledge the huge reputational damage, which is something Martin alluded to earlier. 
year. Yeah. The amount of money in itself is is almost arbitrary. You yeah. know, and it's it's what it means to be seen to have breached this duty. Yeah. And I think one of the other important areas is that the 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 organisational duty of candour will only apply, and I think it's one of the weaknesses of the legislation. It will only apply uh, if and when um, there are repeated uh, failures in an organisation. So uh, it, it doesn't take into account, you know, for example, where where a pattern has not yet been picked up. Um, it would only apply when there's been a clearly established pattern or there's been willful um, mistreatment. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that really causes uh, concern. I think it causes us concern that it, it leads to in a situation where you have uh, an organisational duty set at that level, that it was only if there's repeated and willful errors. But you do have an organi- an individual duty that really is, is quite a it, mm-hmm. it's quite well, it's inconsistent, isn't it? You know, the, it's, in, the, the, it's inconsistent you know, as the organisation. You've got to repeatedly and willfully get it wrong. But for an individual duty, you make one mistake, and your and your scapegoat. Well, the concern is you make one mistake and, and you're in trouble. You know that's so there's, and and that which brings in the the whole question of the relationship between the individuals and the organisation they work for, and and how that works. And one of the things we flagged up in our consultation response, Martin, which I think is very important, I mentioned earlier on the Northern Ireland Social Care Council in its uh, code of practice for social workers, it requires openness, honesty, transparency. Doesn't yeah. use the word duty of candour, but that yeah. is... We have a, a de facto, facto duty. Yeah, de facto yeah. duty of candour, beyond question. Now, Carolyn, if you... Well, sorry, you are a social worker. If you'd made a big mistake and you covered it up and you ended up in front of a, a Northern Ireland Social Care Council panel, you could be struck off the register for that. So the maximum penalty that you face is loss of your career, complete loss of earnings. I think what's important in relation to the statutory organisational duty of candour, that's needed. It needs a penalty. It needs a criminal sanction because there is no equivalent for an organisation compared to what uh, an individual social worker faces. You know, you can be pulled in front of an ESC uh, tribunal. You can lose your job. This, um, the the introduction of criminal sanctions at organisational level are essentially to um, address a gap in the framework which isn't existing at the individual level, would you would you agree with that, Martin? I would. Yes, um, yes. There's there's a there's a there is a gap. There's a difference between organisations and individual workers, and there's there are other issues. Um, you know, if you're if you're brought before a tribunal on a fitness to practice issue, um, then the, uh, the 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 burden of proof there is already the civil standard. It's balance of probabilities. So you know there are more circumstances in which your fitness to practice could be found to be in question. Um, then, then through a criminal charge, which would have to meet the standard of beyond reasonable doubt, which is obviously a much, a much higher threshold. So, and and the penalties that can be imposed uh, through the fitness to practice route are, are, are they're, they're they're more flexible. There are more of them. They can be tuned more easily. <coughs> excuse me to the to the circumstances in which that person has 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 come up short. So, so you've already got this potentially very powerful, very flexible, very wide ranging. Um, power to, to regulate the individuals so what what is what is the the criminal sanction going to do um criminal offenses are like a little bit like money they change everything you know once 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 money's involved and once once criminal penalties are involved things change in unpredictable ways um people's responses um people's um perceptions people's willingness or or, or attempts to try and be defensive and try and game whatever system is in place will be affected depending on what the penalties are. And one of my main concerns, based on what, what, I, what I know about what's being proposed in Northern Ireland, is about the wording of any potential criminal offence. Um, 
it, it looks to me like like there's at least in some circumstances in which you're going to be trying to capture things in criminal law that you've not done something. It's not like you've hit someone or stolen from somebody, or you know, it's not a it's an act of omission rather than commission, and they're always more difficult to capture. Um, and you know, it's interesting you mentioned earlier about about willful neglect. You know, that there's uh, there's a criminal offence in the uh, in the English Mental Capacity Act. Um, I cannot. I'm, Sorry to have to say, I can't remember if it's in the Northern Irish version as well, but it probably is somewhere, um, about willfully neglecting somebody who lacks capacity. And, and on the face of it, why, why would you not criminalise that? It's a terrible thing to do. It's an awful thing to do. Of course it should be a criminal offence. Um, but the, the wording of that offence is notorious amongst lawyers for being absolutely appalling. And it's really, really difficult to prosecute people under that offence, even when they clearly should be, you know, even in circumstances where we're not talking about it being inappropriate or heavy-handed, they clearly should be prosecuted for what they've done, but they can't be, because the, the wording of that offence doesn't work. So um, so those are some of the concerns that, that, that I have about, about what's being proposed. I share your concern that why do we need it? There's already this fitness-to-practice professional regulatory framework, and I've, and I've got the, the, the ongoing concern about, um, about what... What are, the un- what are the unexpected and unintended consequences of criminalising certain things, especially if they're already being regulated? Um, and, and how confident are we that we can word this in a way that it does actually capture the people that we would want it to capture? Um, you know, those, and I, I, I think that those, those are significant questions for, 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 this, for, this in, for this inquiry in Northern Ireland going forward. That's incredibly insightful, Martin. And I think what's really interesting is you were talking about when you criminalise something, um, you know, making people fearful, making people behave differently. We're trying to establish, in relation to the to the hyponatremia inquiry, they're trying to establish a culture of openness, honesty, transparency. And the, the worry is, if you bring in that criminal sanction at an individual level, you will close that down. You will work against that um, intention. Coming back to something Carolyn said earlier, the statutory organisational duty will only kick in, or prosecutions are only ex- anticipated in instances of uh, serial non-compliance or, or you know, very serious incidents. My big concern is that if you can point the finger at an individual where something's gone wrong, if an organisation has the opportunity to point the finger at the individual rather than looking at itself, it will do it. And in that regard, there is the, the worry that instead of organisations reflecting on poor practice, reflecting on single incidents um, of poor practice or mistakes that could turn into um, a series of incidents, if not addressed, or actually could be one of a series of incidents that hasn't actually been fully uncovered, having that opportunity to point the finger at social worker A, means that you actually are, again, potentially working against that openness, honesty, transparency at organisational level. And that's where the mistakes happen. When you have an organisational structure which is causing problems, when you have staff teams that are overburdened, as we know, it's not unique to Northern Ireland, but across the UK, social workers that are carrying untenable caseloads um, that are you know, burning out, those issues need to be addressed at an organisational level because those are the issues that lead to mistakes being made. And sorry... That was a very, a very long statement to say. When you can point the finger at an individual, there's much less chance of organisations fixing problems, and that will cause bigger problems down the line. I think you're absolutely right, Andy. I mean, in looking at this response when we were bringing it together, we looked at uh, the findings from SCRs in in England and and CMRs, as we call them something different here. Uh, But essentially, the messages are the same. They're about the fact that uh, where where mistakes were made and where children were harmed or died, um, that 
you know, the, the teams involved had excessively high caseloads. They often had uh, insufficient staff. Um, people were described as being overwhelmed and drowning. And, you know, th- those are really grandiose. I mean, they're really severe terms to use. But actually, I mean, Andy, you and I can we, we can totally get on board with that. We hear that from members every single day who phone our office and talk to us about what they're experiencing. And I think on until we actually have a system that takes on board um, those concerns, um, we, we fail social workers tremendously. And I don't think we further the cause. I mean, I've listened, um, I've been part of panels. And I mean, it's very, very difficult to listen to service users describing experiences and, and they strongly believe in this, you know, sense that we should tell the truth and we should be open. And I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's very hard to disagree with that. But I'm not convinced that uh, that criminalising um, a process to try and get to the truth will actually have uh, any impact. And I think the more we criminalise and put criminal sanctions in place, we actually uh, shut down that, that opportunity to openly and honestly learn about what happened and make sure, say sorry, and make sure that it doesn't happen again, which is what we know that people want when they've been wronged. There is. And and one of the issues, and I would be in big trouble if we didn't discuss this, Carolyn. Um, Indeed. Uh, one of the issues that the, the consultation um, recognises as being problematic at the organisational level is they query whether legislating to require an apology is an appropriate thing to do. Now, in our response, we have proposed um, a restorative justice approach. And when I was saying it would be remiss if I didn't raise this, our wonderful colleague, Martina Jordan, um, is the greatest proponent for restorative practices, I think, anywhere uh, in the world. But And she is internationally. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is. She works internationally on this issue, so that's fair to say. And I really hope she hears this. Carolyn, tell us, what, what would a restorative um, uh, justice approach look like in this context and how could it help? Um, I mean, I think we would, uh, I mean, what we're proposing actually is around the fact that someone within an organisation takes responsibility, takes ownership of that and actually brings a really facilitative approach. And it, it involves people coming together, um, you know, someone who's been harmed and someone who has harmed and actually talking about what happened. Um, and I mean, the results speak for themselves. I mean, there's results in uh, in England that's internationally uh, accredited um, and that People really want to feel vindicated. They want a sense of justice and they really want a reassurance that it will never happen again and that no other family will ever go through what they've gone through. And it's what a restorative uh, approach brings, um, a chance to uh, talk about the impact of the event has had on the family, explore those impacts um, and give a meaningful apology and assurance that we have learned the lessons and it will not happen again. Um, the rebuilding of trust, though, as well, for the person who has been wronged or in the case of a fatality for the victim's family, they will, for the rest of their lives, continue to be users of health and social care services in Northern Ireland. So it's vital that they are actually at the centre of this and, and that the trust that they have is rebuilt so that they know that they can continue to use services safely. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting idea. I was, I was really interested to read that that aspect of, of the of the Basel Northern Ireland response proposing proposing this approach, uh, you know, I, I knowing Martina as I do, I, I could see could see, could see her, her input there. So that was that was great to see, and it might you know it might be a way of addressing some of the issues that that we're talking about here. It's a way of addressing the tick box patently insincere apology that isn't going to change anything. It's a way of addressing the complexities of 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 
designing a criminal offence that captures all the people you want it to and other people you don't and is actually going to make a difference to things. Um, because that's, you know, as, as you know, anybody with experience in the criminal justice system knows it can be very impersonal, it can be very impenetrable, it's not, it's not designed around the victims. It's, you know, the, the, the idea is that, that you've offended the Crown and the Crown is going to sort you out. You know, the actual person that, that this has happened to is almost irrelevant in some ways in the process. I mean, attempts are being made to promote, you know, justice for victims and support for victims and so on, but, but they're not, the, th- the theory of how it works, they're not at the centre of it. It's, it's the power of the state against, against the individual. And, and people are often left very disappointed by, by the outcomes of, of, of criminal processes. Um, whereas the opportunity to really, really get your message across, look, look the person in the eye who, who is saying, yes, this is on me, and, and tell them what it felt like when you were told about your child's death or, or whatever's happened, and see that it means something to them. Actually believe that, yes, this person, their, their life has now changed, my life's been changed, their life has now changed as well, because they now have a, I believe they've got a genuine commitment to making sure this doesn't happen again. I, I, I think there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to commend it, and, and I, hope, I hope it gets... Get, get serious attention in, in, when, when, you, when you submit the response. So, Carolyn, in relation to the individual, Judy of Calendar, uh, and what that means, we won't spend too long digging into these because there's an awful lot of information. But essentially, three options have been proposed. One, which is an individual statutory Judy of Calendar with criminal sanctions for breach. So that means an individual who transgresses that Judy of Calendar, who makes a mistake and covers it up, would face potential criminal sanctions. And rather unhelpfully, the consultation doesn't state what the maximum penalty would be. It talks about the maximum penalty in the case of organisational duty, and that's a fine, £5,000 fine. I can't imagine an individual statutory duty of candor having a heavier criminal sanction than one at organisational level, but it could. So it's, it's not helpful that that hasn't been specified. The second option is a statutory individual duty of candor without criminal sanctions for breach. And the third is a statutory uh, individual duty of candor without criminal sanctions for breach, but with criminal sanctions for willful destruction of evidence, for example. And I think in relation to those three options, the first one we're saying criminal sanctions for breach, it potentially creates this fear culture, which runs counter to the entire um, thrust of these proposals. As part of that first individual statutory duty with criminal sanctions for breach. If it's a £5,000 fine, that's significant. Nobody wants to be landed with that fine. But in the face of a complete loss of earnings by being struck off the social work register, you know, that £5,000 figure is actually fairly insignificant. Our argument being that when you have the potential potential for removal from the register for um, a breach of a duty of candour, Having an additional criminal sanction, it kind of becomes unnecessary. It's it's a sort of an unnecessary, un- unnecessarily duplicative mechanism. For the second option to have an individual duty of candor without criminal sanctions, that adds nothing. That's entirely superfluous. That adds nothing to the current regulatory framework. And then thirdly, this proposal for an individual duty of candor without criminal sanctions for breach, but with criminal sanctions for, for example, destruction of evidence. That would be an issue that NISC would probably strike you off the register for anyway. So again, it adds nothing to the framework other than the potential for reinforcing what we know does exist, a blame culture. If you turn that blame culture into a culture of fear, you're working directly counter to the proposals in the consultation for um, a culture of openness and honesty. 
So that's a sort of, without getting into too much detail, that is a summary of the, the proposals in relation to the individual statutory duty. Indeed, and Andy, I mean, we've done a lot of consultation around this. As as you know, we've we've engaged with our members and we've had two communities of practice events, really, um, really engaged members have joined that. And actually, we've debated, you know, the three options as, as you've set out there. And I think there was some initial people going, well, maybe maybe we should be looking at, well, could we support the third option? You know, it, does it bring something new to the table? But actually, fundamentally, our, our, our members um, and actually we, we included um, all social workers because we felt the, the issue was so important. Um, was that actually it, it doesn't actually add anything to the situation it actually it simply duplicates what is already there under um, the, the NIST code um, and so you know we, we haven't been able to get behind it so our position paper is that we, we really do think it will lead to a culture of fear um, and you know how, how likely are you to be open and honest if you fear that you know the person who you'd be open and honest about may well lose their livelihood and, and face uh, criminal prosecution. Um, so we, we we have opposed um, all, all three um, options. Uh, we we support the in the organisational duty and we support a culture of openness and transparency without question. And we absolutely support a culture of openness and honesty. And we've offered to be involved, um, you know, as people championing that. I mean, I think it's interesting looking back to Justice O'Hara's um, work on, on the hyponatremia inquiry. I think it's fair to say that, you know, and he would acknowledge himself, the system has changed substantially from the period of time that he was looking at. Um, and there have been, you know, the system has moved um, from a place where, and I think he was founded in saying there was secrecy and honest, uh, and people were afraid to be honest, to one actually where uh, people are encouraged to be open and encouraged to be honest. And as social workers, we will be at the forefront of championing that and encouraging everyone um, involved in the system to be uh, to be open and honest with with everyone that they encounter, yeah, which is what which is what we should be doing, and and there's another practical point around having almost a kind of double jeopardy system um, of of you know of, of, of criminal sanction and then a professional sanction. Um, is it, I expect it would be likely to mean that that inquiries into an individual professional's practice would take much longer, because the criminal process will take its time, and that's not a quick process. And the regulator is not going to do anything, I don't expect, until the criminal proceedings are concluded. And then somebody being convicted of these offences is probably not going to get them automatically struck off the register. There would have to be a separate fitness to practice process. So, so it's going to take a very long time to, to reach a final determination uh, of what should happen in these individual cases. And, um, you know, people you know might not have that much sympathy for the people concerned if, they, if they've been guilty of poor practice. But... That's taking up an awful lot of time in the court system. It's taking time up in the regulatory system. Uh, it's costing public money. Um, is 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 it proportionate? You know, is is it what level of what level of protection, um, public confidence are you you going to to generate from this from the, from this kind of double whammy approach? It's different for organisations, as we've said, because there isn't any the direct accountability. Um, Unless you can prosecute them under health and safety legislation, which sometimes happens, but 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 it, that's not very common either, and and the threshold uh, for, for 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 proving those offences is, is will be problematic in lots of cases. So there's there's a different argument for saying there's a gap here at organisational level which we need to fix. But but for you know for, for what happens to individual professionals for all the reasons we've been discussing, I think it's got to be a very serious question about whether 
whether this is actually going to do what people want it to do and is and is going to do it at proportionate cost and 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 proportionate impact on 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 the profession and on and on public finances thank you martin um carolyn there's one last point i wanted to reflect on just as we as we wrap up you said at the start of the conversation that you know two-thirds of social workers work within our health and social care system that means there are jobs outside hsc and there are opportunities to leave and that is a worry about retaining staff in the workforce but more than that we're facing i think what we can describe as a retirement bubble uh, in our health and social care workforce and, and social work in particular Looking at our social work workforce within our health and social care sector, about a third, 32%, are aged 50 or, or over. And as far as I'm aware, the average age at which normal retirement is taken is around 61 years. That means we're going to have a, a huge proportion of our workforce going to retire in the next 10 years. If you were a social worker, you're 55 years old, you see this individual duty of candor brought in to um, health and social care. I imagine that could be another factor that would push you towards leaving either to another sector or to early retirement. I mean, I think absolutely, Andy. I mean, it's it's really startling that we have that amount of our workforce, um, you know, over the age of fifty, and there, there's been a um, there, there's been a um, a process happening before COVID, which was the workforce review, and the the government are, are are yet to publish. I think they're almost ready to publish around looking at what our workforce needs. But yeah, this absolutely has to centre, you know, uh, in the middle of it all, because why would you stay in a in a sector where uh, this this individual duty of candor could be brought into force. Um, I mean, we're we're not alone in highlighting the recruitment issue. I mean, I know um, the doctors and nurses professional bodies are 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 saying the same thing. Uh, many saying that you know people simply won't come and work here. Uh, I think that's less of an issue for us in Northern Ireland in that we tend to, you know, we talk about we grow our own social workers. People tend to study here um, and work here. But increasingly, we're seeing people, you know, moving to Tisla and to the to the south. And for people working on the border areas, that, that's going to be a bigger pool. And our percentage who've moved from the health and social care, you know, it's getting smaller. So um, two thirds, we're saying, are working outside of HSC. And I can well imagine that that will, that will increase um, with, with this issue coming on board. Thank you, Carolyn. It's, it's vital that we address this. Um, if you're listening to this episode and you haven't um, engaged in the consultation process yet, the consultation closes on the 2nd of August. Baswa has submitted its response already. Um, we'll link that in the show notes. I'll also link the consultation document. If you are a social worker based in Northern Ireland and you want to reply to, uh, respond to that consultation, please do. Please make your views known and please feel free to draw on the content of the Baswa Northern Ireland response to inform yours. Carolyn, thanks. Thanks for your time. Martin, thanks. Thanks for participating. Thanks for your expertise. You've been you've brought really helpful insights to the conversation. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, you know, it's been a really good opportunity to kind of think this through. And, and you know, we, we, we need to re- stress again, don't we, that, that openness and honesty are absolutely fundamental to what being a social worker is. And it's what people want to do when they practice social work. What we're looking at is some proposals that, however well intentioned, have got us worried about whether they're actually going to have unintended and negative consequences and, and are actually going to stand in the way of the promotion of a culture of openness, which is what we all want to see. 